1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read down through verse 25. First Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For that, after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seeked after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I've titled the message this morning, The Preaching of the Cross, Power or Foolishness? Power or Foolishness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me. I pray that your word would go forth in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. I pray that the spirit of God would work in our midst for your glory and for your honor. For you said where you are lifted up, we will be drawn unto thee. So Lord, just work in our midst. For your glory we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. You know, the world looks at us and looks at us getting together like this and you sitting and less listening to the preaching of the word of God as that's kind of and really what this word foolishness means is silly or absurd. That's how the world looks at. See, preaching is you know definition of preaching that I would that I've I've kind of gathered and is teaching with the purpose to persuade from a point of authority. And of course, our authority is the Word of God. So it's teaching or expl- explaining the Word of God with the purpose of persuading you to adhere or to accept that truth and to act on it. It is not man's opinions. It's an explanation of the Scriptures for the purpose of application in life. If the Scriptures don't make any application in your life, they are worthless. You know, God gave Ten Commandments, and then He gave five books explaining those Ten Commandments and how they apply to life. Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, wrote the book of Romans to the churches of Rome. In in chapters 1 through 11, he's teaching doctrine, mostly he's teaching doctrine. And then when you get to the next five chapters, 12 through 16, he's explaining, here's how you apply these doctrines to life. You remember what chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Here's how you apply it to life. 
And he goes on in the next five chapters, those five chapters, explaining that most of it has to do with practical Christian living. How God's Word, the truth of God's Word, applies to my life. Ephesians is the same way. Verses chapters 1 through 3 is mostly doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 talks about serving the Lord. Relationships, whether it's family relationships, employee-employer relationships, it's all talked about in chapters 5 and 6. And our inner man and how we ought to act in life, particularly chapter 4. But see, to the world, this is all silly. It's kind of absurd. And this, of course, because they're lost. And think about it. Now, now look at it. Try and look at it. You know, you've been hearing this preaching most of your life, most of you. So try to look at it from the world's point of view. The crucifixion is one of the most cruel and humiliating and torturous means of punishment. You know, depending on the type of crucifixion, some, you know, some crucifixions, particularly thieves, they would tie them to, to, so they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, you know, pierce them. They would tie them. And sometimes some writers say, and of course writers don't all agree, but sometimes they might live three or four days hanging on a cross. Now, do you have any indication you think that might be pleasant? It'd be three or four days of torture. So, so again, depending on the type, but typically the, the way Jesus was crucified, one could live up to 24 hours on a cross. There was suffocation, loss of body fluids, and multiple organ failure as a result. And usually they would suffocate, eventually suffocate to death. Because, and that's why, remember when, when, at the crucifixion of Christ, they came to break their legs because it was the Sabbath day. They wanted them to die quickly. Because if, if the legs aren't broken, you know, the, they can push themselves up with their, with their legs and, and, and get some air and continue breathing. But if they can't push themselves up, then the, the lungs began to fill up with fluid and they can't, they can't breathe. It affects the chest cavity and all that. And so that's why they broke their legs. They wanted them to die quickly. But if those aren't broken, you know, they can suffer that for, for a long time. You know, it was not just a means of capital punishment, but it struck fear in the hearts of would-be insurrectionists. And many in the world think that it is absurd that a God who's a God of love would send his son and have him put to death on a cross. For us, that is absurd to them. It's foolish. That's crazy. That just doesn't seem rational. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul here, writing under inspiration, gives us two reasons why they think that way. Two reasons why people think that way. If you notice in... Well, first of all, the first reason is they want some sign or miracle of authentication. In verses 22 and 23, he says, For the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. So they want, the Jews wanted some sign or some miracle of authentication, of course, that Jesus was who he claimed he was. 
And of course, you know, the word sign here you know, speaks of miracles or wonders which God, by which God authenticates that men were sent by him, or by which men prove that they are the cause, that they are the leading of God. And, and we see this, you know, Jesus talked about this throughout the New Testament, and particularly, in the, of course, in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39, of course, the Jews come to him on this occasion, and they say, Matthew 12, 38 and 39, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So they're asking for a sign, and he tells them, the only sign you're going to get is Jonah. Is Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights. In chapter 16, again, they ask him, the Pharisees also with Sadducees came and tempting him, that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. (laughs) You know, so they were constantly seeking signs. Even Herod, in Luke 23, 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was seeing glass, Glad, for he was desirous to see him a long season, because he heard many things of him, and hoped that he would that to have seen some miracle. The word miracle is the same word we use for sign. He wanted to see some miracle of him. But to me, here's the interesting thing. I want you to listen really close. In John seven thirty one, it says, "And many of the people believed on him." Now, when we say people believed on him, what do we often think? That they got saved. But let's read the rest of the verse. And said, when Christ cometh. We've got a problem here, don't we? It says they believed on him, but then they said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles, there's our word sign, than this, these which this man doeth. Now, I want you to think about what that verse says. Would he do more miracles? So was he doing miracles? Was he showing signs of who he was? And it says they believed on him. In other words, they believed that he actually did those miracles. But it still didn't prove to them who he really was. Because they said, when Christ cometh, See, they still haven't put two and two together and come up with four. That this is the Christ. No man can do these miracles except God. Be with him. In chapter John chapter 11, verse 47 says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees at council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. In other words, they know he did miracles. And yet they would constantly come to him and say, show us a sign from heaven. What do they need? Hit with a, with a rock or something? 
You know, if you are stuck or persuaded in your stubborn and bitter unbelief, signs and miracles will not convince you otherwise. Unbelief is a choice. It's a choice. They chose. It, they saw miracles, but they chose not to believe him. It was a willful choice. Even though they saw, and, then, and of course they were consistently saying, well, show us a, show us a miracle. He could have done miracles every day right in front of their noses and they would not have believed in him. Because they chose not to believe in him. See, people want some spectacular, or that this is an, it's really an excuse. Show me some extraordinary miracle and then I'll believe. No, it's, it's a, the source of that is unbelief. The second thing we see here is People are, and like the, the Greeks, that, that was typical of the Jews, but like the, the Greeks, they are seeking some intellectual or philosophical explanation. If you notice again, verse 22 says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews, a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, foolishness. See, they want to be able to explain it through natural philosophy or physical science. Can you explain the Trinity that way? Can you explain the new birth that way? You know, this is what Nicodemus tried to do. He, he, when, Jesus, when he came to Jesus by night and said, you know, good master, you know, and, and Jesus said, you must be born again, and he said, but how can a man be born and enter the second time into his mother's womb? See, he's trying to explain it through natural or physical science. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Except a man be born of the water, there's your physical birth, and the spirit, it's a spiritual birth. It is not a natural or something of nature. It's not a natural phenomenon. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual birth. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, Luke 18, 18. Says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There isn't anything you can do to inherit eternal life. The work of redemption is done. It isn't something that you can work for. You see, the, his, his phraseology ex, exposes his ignorance. He's asking, what can I do? What else can I do? I've kept all the commandments. What else can I do? It isn't what you do. It's what you received. It is a gift of God. The work of redemption is done. We can't add to it. And many in the world are looking for something that they do. No. They think they're all right because they go to church. They read their Bible. They even pray. I mean, they may even be baptized. But those things won't save you. It's not what you do. And see, this idea that the work of salvation is done, redemption is done, it's all been paid for, it's simply a gift of God, is a strange doctrine to them. You know, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was at Athens, and, and they, they, they said that his, they, and two times in that passage, it talks about these strange new things that they were hearing. 
See, every other religion in the world is a works-based religion. There's only one that's not. That's really faith-based. That's Christianity. We're the only one. Catholicism is a works-based religion. Islam is a works-based religion. Mormonism is a works-based religion. Jehovah's Witnesses is a works-based religion. If you start really examining their doctrine, it's all works-based. Now, they might say, oh, yes, faith in Christ, but then you have to do this, this, and this. Christianity is not that way. And what, what has happened here is, you know, Paul talked about this when he wrote the church at Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23, he says this, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. Now, what is will worship? Will worship is worship which one devises and prescribes for himself. In other words, he decides, he makes up for himself, he makes a God that fits his ideas and his plans, that he thinks best for himself. He doesn't accept what God says, the word, the God of the Bible. He makes a God to fit himself. That's will worship. That's what all these false religions are doing. Something they can explain and understand. It's merit based. It is unbelief in the word of the living God. Again, it's a refusal to accept God's word in his way. But again, it's a choice. You know, the perishing think that the preaching of the cross is foolishness, and that is a choice. And even we, sometimes, we can refuse to believe or trust God, believe his ways are right, because we cannot see the end. Just as the children of Israel could not see the end. How God was going to take them into the land of Israel. And they turned away in unbelief. And so, to the perishing, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to the saved, it is the power of God. If you notice in verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of of God. Now the word power here means strength, ability, authority. And it's, t- it's speaking of an inherent power residing in a thing, particularly here in God, by virtue of his nature. So this is a power that's existing or is a permanent quality of God. That's what inherent means. It's a permanent or existing quality of God. You know, strength, Ability, authority. Now, I'm going to look at those three words. As we think about it, the preaching of the cross is to us that are saved, it is the power of God. It's authority. You remember in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is giving his disciples the great commission. He said this, all power is given unto me. All power is given unto me. That word power there, the meaning is Authority. And he says, go ye, because I have all authority, it's all given to me, go ye therefore. So, all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
John 5, 26 and 27, he says, For the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So this authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, and and and, and it's authority that he gives or enables or, or he gives to us to 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 obey him or follow him or or uh, he authorizes us to go forth in his name. Uh, John one twelve. But as many as receive him, to them gave he power or authority or the right to be called the sons of God. We cannot, we have no right to be called the sons of God by going our own way and making a God of our own thinking. The authority or the right to be called a child of God is all dependent upon him. He's the one that gives us that authority. You know, your right to life as a child of God is passed from him to you. You know, one of the things we say at a, at a wedding, well, before we pronounce them, husband and wife will often say, you know, some, many times preachers say, according to the power invested in me. Now that power or that authority, that's the idea there of authority. In other words, I have the authority because uh, uh, as, as, a, as a preacher of the gospel, the state has given me the authority to declare that you are a husband and wife. But it's invested. In other words, it's been transferred to me. You know, our president has authority invested or furnished to him by the Constitution. As a pastor, I have been furnished with authority by the Lord, but it's governed by my walk with the Lord. If, as we heard in Sunday school class before, if I get outside of the Word of God as Moses did, I've lost that authority. If our president gets outside the Constitution, he's lost his authority. See, it's an authority that's invested. God has given us an invested authority. We have the authority to take the gospel to the lost and dying world. You know, somebody might ask you sometime, what right do you have knocking on my door and talking to me about the Lord? A right answer would say, well, God has called me to be an ambassador for him. An ambassador has great authority, but his authority comes from the state from which he's sent. It's not in him alone. So we've been appointed or invested with this authority. You know, the Sanhedrin arrested Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, and they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the authority. And Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. See, we have, we've been given an authority by God. It's a power to preach him among all nations. Secondly, as we think about the power of God, there's ability. The word ability means Capability to do. Now, you remember in Acts chapter one, Jesus told the disciples that they were to, that they would receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. 
And the Holy Spirit, of course, is our comforter. He's the one that comes alongside. He's our, the Bible uses the word succorer, one to aid or support or strengthen or give power to. So what gave Peter, who, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, denied he knew Jesus' name, but on the day of Pentecost, what gave Peter the ability to stand up and say to the Jews, you know, he says, he said to them, let, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now I imagine there were some people there that day who were watching the trial of Jesus also who knew that Peter denied him. But he ain't denying him anymore. All of a sudden, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of his own life. For his own life. I mean, can you get any bolder than what Peter did? He said, whom ye crucified... Where did he get that power? Where did he get that ability? Where did Paul get the capability to serve the Lord as he did? You know, think about it. Going from city to city, riot to riot, persecution to persecution. How did he handle it? Well, Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for he accounted me faithful putting me in the ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10 he said this. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10 But by the grace of God I am what I am. By the grace of God. Where did he get the wisdom to reason from the scriptures as he did? Your know, wisdom here is, is defined as broad and full intelligence. Where did he get the wisdom to reason from the Scriptures with the Jews? And with those at Athens? Even quoting their own poets. Where did he get that? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, speaking about Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I want you to think about that. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that means that everything that is or can be known, past, present, and future, he knows it. He knows it. He understands the complex applications of life. He understands how men and women think and feel. He can explain the atom, the microorganisms, the solar system, the tiniest parts of the cells in your body. He knows the number of the hairs in your head. He even knows your thoughts afar off. There isn't anything that he does not know. Nothing. Now, I don't necessarily think I'm a dunce, but there's a lot of things I don't know. A lot of things. And I mean a lot of things. So when you get feeling kind of smart, just compare yourself to God. You know, Job was one of the wisest men of the East. But when the Lord started asking questions, 
This is what Job said in Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. See, there's nothing God can't do except sin. Nothing. And, furthermore, that no thought can be withholden from thee. He knows every thought you think. Every word you say. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I... Again, this is one of the wisest men in the East. He said, I have uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful me, which I knew not. You know, David... The Bible tells us David had more wisdom than his enemies. He had more wisdom than his teachers. He had more wisdom than the ancients. I mean, the old men with much experience. He had more wisdom than all of these. Where did he get it? Where did he get the wisdom to overcome his enemies in battle? Well, he was just a, a genius when it came to warfare. No, he wasn't. Psalm 19, 119 tells us where he got that wisdom. In verse 98, says, Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies. Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. See, David not only, he learned from his father, but he, he learned and he spent time with God, he learned more than his father. God gave him more wisdom than his father had. God gave him. You know, education does not equal wisdom. Some educated people don't even know what gender they are. I mean... You talk about foolishness. You know, educated people don't think abortion is murder even if they're born alive. But you kill an eagle, you're worthy of going to jail. I mean, does that make sense? Or destroy an eagle egg and you're worthy of going to jail. You know, educated people believe in climate change. They think Islam is a peaceful religion and Christianity is hateful. Does that make sense? You know, we're told to love our enemies and they're told to slay their enemies. I mean, just read their book and read ours. You see, and what, and Paul goes on here says there is no comparison between Man's wisdom and God's wisdom. There isn't even anything, any comparison. You, know, you notice in verse 25, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. There is no comparison. It's like sending a grasshopper to fight a dinosaur. There's no comparison. And you know, the more you understand about God the more you're going to believe Him and trust Him. 
See, Joshua and Caleb understood the power of God because they knew God. They had come to know Him and believed. They were convinced that if He said it, it would happen. But this third word here, let's think about power, and that is the word might. And the word might is defined as a force or energy. And where did Paul get the energy to continue his ministry as he did? Did you ever think about that? Like I said, from city to city, riot to riot, persecution to persecution. Sometimes, you know, stone left for dead on one occasion. You know, almost run out many of the places he went. Always, you know, many times fleeing for his life. Shipwrecked, beaten with rods. You know, how did, where did he get the energy? You know, John Mark kind of quit, went home. I can't handle this. He wasn't prepared for that. Where did Paul get the energy to continue? In Colossians 1.11, Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he says, Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And that word might there, it means a force, a mighty deed, a work of power. It's a power that energizes. In verse 29 of Colossians 1, he says, Wherefore, Whereunto I also labor, striding, striving according to his working. And that word working is energo, where we get our word energy. It's his working. It's his might. It's his energy, which worketh in me mightily. We can't do the work of God with our own energy. If we're trusting in ourselves to make it work and do it, we're going to fall flat in our faces. We need the energy. We need the might of God. Because we're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're not wrestling against men and women. Galatians 5, 6, I used this thing last week. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh. And there's our word energy. Faith which worketh by love. The more we love him, the more that's the energy that feeds our faith. As we draw closer to Christ and love him more and more, our faith is going to decrease. The reason Joshua and Caleb believed God was because they loved him with all the heart. The Bible says that Caleb, five times of Caleb, that he wholly followed the Lord his God. I mean, he was holy. He, he said, talking about how his heart was to wholly follow the Lord his God. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, but all we ask to think, according to the power that worketh in us. See, God's power can work in us. But we have to allow it. We have to believe what he says and take him at his word. Joshua or Caleb saw the evidence God manifests, his power manifests in his life because he believed him. It wasn't 40 years later till he actually saw it come to fruition when he actually got to go into the land and drive out the children of Anak, those giants that everybody else was afraid of. 
at 85 years old. Where did the power come from? God. His belief in God. See, God said, go in and possess it. God did the driving act. If we will take God at his word, he'll drive the enemy out of our life. But see, this foolishness is really unbelief, and it's a failure to see or accept the person of God. God has revealed his wisdom and his power in a person. Verse 24 says, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, this power and wisdom of God is manifest to us in a person. That's in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality power. See, he's the head. He's above all powers. And if we are in him, we have that power available to us, to work through us as we submit to him, as we believe him. Trust him. You know, sometimes I'm afraid we're like, some of you may have saw the Andy Griffith show where Barney was trying to use some psychology on, I think, Otis, I think it was. And he drew this picture, and he asked Andy what it looked like, and Andy said, a bat. And he said, see, you got problems. Because you see bats and I see butterflies. It says, problem is, too often we see the circumstances and we fail to see God. And then we say, it can't happen. We can't do it. I'll be honest with you. I think most modern preachers would have said to Paul, why are you going to Corinth? Why are you wasting your time? You can't start a church there. It's too wicked. It's too wicked a place. But where there's a God and a man or a woman that believes God, anything is possible if it's the will of God anything. You see, the preaching of the cross is to us that are saved, it's the power of God. Are you submitting to God and allowing that power to be manifested in your life, or are you looking at it and say, I, I just don't think it can be done. It doesn't make sense. I don't see how it's possible. Because it looks, it looks, from my point, viewpoint, it looks impossible. Hey, if it's God's will, it's possible. God can take a blasphemous, arrogant, prideful Jew and make him a humble preacher of the gospel who will endure persecutions for Christ's sake, even go to prison. He could have walked out of prison anytime he wanted. All he had to do is deny the faith. 
So I had to. So the question is, are you experiencing the power of God in your life? Another way of saying is that, are you trusting him? Are you obeying him?